0: Thanks for tuning in to the Voyage Church podcast. Our desire is that today's message will be significant for all of us on the voyage of becoming. If someone ever asked you about Voyage Church that you can be assured of, we're gonna worship and we're gonna open the word, amen? All right, so let's do that. Um, We're gonna move quick. I don't actually have a super, I don't have a lot of scripture today Um, and I'm doing something I've never done today. I'm actually, my main scripture is um, genealogy. So um, this is like a really easy sermon to fall asleep in. So if you're in here and you find yourself kind of dozing, just stand on up, go stand in the back of the room, lean on the curtain, okay? <laughs> I used to have to do that in Bible college. I would be falling asleep and i have to go, but I'd lean on the wall and then I'd fall, find myself falling asleep on the wall, right? You're paying all this money to like learn the Bible and you're falling asleep, Darren. It's terrible. So, um, but shooty chop your friend in the throat, whatever you got to do to keep him awake, okay? So here's the title of my message today. Arrival of the way. Here we are at Christmas time, December, stepping in. If you're not a Christian and you've even grown up in America, you would agree that Christmas, um, in a religious sense, is about the birth of Jesus. Okay, um, no, nobody's probably confused on that. But this religious word, maybe you've heard it. Um, I don't want to say it's a super religious word. It's it's got uh, it's it's got a really healthy connotation, but I think um, it can become religious. Is this word Advent? Maybe you've heard Advent, maybe you've seen it posted, maybe you've met someone who's like, oh, Advent just started. And Advent really at the core, all it means is arrival or to come into. And so Advent is all wrapped around the idea that Jesus came into the world. That's what Advent is. But I kind of, as I was thinking about it, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? John the Baptist said, prepare the way. And I just started thinking about the fact that Jesus, Advent is really the arrival of the way. People were looking for a way. People were looking for a way to live, something that would satisfy, something that would work, even when it came to the religiosity of just trying to keep the Ten Commandments, and God gave us the Ten Commandments to show us you can't keep it, and i got to send you one that will be able to fulfill that, and that can cover your sin. It was people just trying to find a way, trying to find a way, and Jesus is the arrival of the way. I don't know where you are today, or if you're looking for a way, or if you've been trying some things, but This moment is not about, hey, come to church and check off a box. This moment is not about like, hey, I found a good church, and I'm going to go hear some worship and hear someone talk about the Bible, and good, God gave me a golf clap, and I'm out of here. No, this is about the arrival of the way. This is about that life makes sense, and satisfaction happens when we encounter Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It'll always be about Jesus. And so I want to take you on a little journey this morning that um, the way has arrived. The way for you to have joy in the workplace that you don't enjoy, there's a way and it's arrived. The way for your marriage to flourish again has arrived. It's arrived. The way for you to be set free from addiction and bondage, the way for you to be set free from shame and guilt, it's arrived. You're not waiting on it. It's already here and his name is Jesus. And so I want to take you through a couple of things that is interesting about um, this arrival. For you got to realize for the Jewish people, in their mindset, it was all about waiting. They were waiting for the Messiah, okay? And the Messiah is Jesus, correct? So they're waiting. They, they've been waiting. Everything in their, in their belief system is saying, we're waiting on the Messiah. We're waiting on this one to come. And so there's these two words in Hebrew um, that translate as wait or as hope. And it's very interesting, and I want to show you what those are. The first one is quava, and it means to wait. Um, And it would be as if, so quava would be this. It would be to wait, or quav actually means cord in Hebrew. So think about this. Think about, have you ever, like, stretched something really, really, really far just to see how far it would go till it finally breaks? That's the idea of quava. It is to wait. It is almost where there's this tension and this expectation, and then it finally breaks. So there's that word in Hebrew for to wait or to hope. And there's another one called yakal, and it means to wait for. And it's not waiting for a thing, it's waiting for a who. So it's a little bit different, where quava would be like, hey, I'm waiting for this situation to change. But yakal is I'm waiting for someone. I'm waiting on someone. And so there's this scripture in Psalms 39, and it's pretty interesting. If we read it in um, English, it would just say, and now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. But in Greek or in the Hebrew, it would actually be, and now, Lord, for what do I quava? My Yakal is in you. In other words, it's saying, and now, Lord, what do I quavah? What do I wait? What, what is there to wait on? What thing, what situation am I waiting to change when my yakal, when my, my waiting or my hope is in you? In other words, God, you're already there. You're already for me. I'm not waiting on God to be for me. God is already for me. This situation in front of me might not have changed, but I'm not waiting on God. I've already got God, even if the situation is not what I want it to look like. And so I need you to understand that these two words, almost the whole time in the Hebrew, they always translate to hope, hope. And that's really what I wanna focus on today is this idea of this arrival of the way, this arrival of Jesus, he showed up, With hope. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a hopeless situation, or if you're today in a hopeless situation. There's some of you in the room that you've got a hopeless situation that has been a part of your life for many, many years, and you've gotten so good at masking it and living with it that if someone asked you if you're okay, you would say, yeah, I'm good. But if someone sat with you long enough to dig back into that relationship with your father or that situation with your mother or that situation with your ex-husband or what so-and-so did to you in high school, we would get to a place and realize, no, there's actually still something hopeless in you. You just do a good job at masking it. You do a good job, as Jonathan said, at keeping things in front and involved in your life caffeine or whatever it may be to keep you energy, keep you pressed on, right? I, I'm, I'm focused on my kids, my kids are my priority now. And that hopeless situation and that thing that God does want to heal and does want to do something about, he's not able to do anything about because you've done really good to say, well, there is something hopeless, but I'm not even going to address it or talk about it, I'm fine. Hey, how are you today? I'm fine. Hey, how are you? We're doing good, we're doing good. But you and your wife were just screaming at each other last night, you didn't even sleep in the same room. What do you mean you're good? And this is the way. This is the way we live. This is not the arrival of the way Jesus brought, but this is the way we live. I'm standing before you as your pastor, guilty as charged. It is so easy for there to be hopelessness and to just mask it and get through it. So here's what hope is. Hope is the state of anticipation, and, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. I was looking up several doctors that said this idea of hope, even what it does to the brain when they do brain scans, that hope is actually crucial for a healthy human being. Nothing to do with religion or faith. Just the idea of hope, a state of anticipation, looking forward to something, is, is, is crucial for the health of a human. But here's, here's what we've done, is we've mixed hope and optimism. You know anybody who's really optimistic? You know anybody who's just like really good at saying everything's going to be good? And again, some of that is like a gift from the Lord. But we have to understand the difference between hope. I know people who are hopeful people, and they're really good at walking in hope. But then there's people who can just be optimistic, and it's not the same. Optimism looks at circumstances, and they just believe, hey, I know it's bad, but something good can come out of it. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. So if you're like miss optimism in the room, don't go home and tell your husband. I know I've been optimistic for like 17 years, but pastors, I don't know, have to. It's kind of pointless. I'm done. I'm not telling you that, okay? What I'm telling you is that optimism, not paired with real hope, won't produce anything in your life. And so here's the interesting thing about biblical hope. Biblical hope is different than optimism because optimism, again, says this thing's broken. But I'm just believing that something good's going to happen. It's okay, guys. It's all good, right? Total your car. They get out. I'm fine. It's all good. You know? And it's like, no, sit down. Your leg's broken, and your car's totaled, and we need to call an ambulance. Yeah, but it's all good. I'm fine. See, biblical hope is different. Biblical hope doesn't look at situations and then say, something good's going to come out of it, and and I'm just going to keep having hope that something good will come out of it. Biblical hope is not looking at situations or looking at things. It's looking at a, per- a person. See, optimism would say, I'm just believing that something's going to get better. Hope would say it's already gotten better because Jesus has already arrived. I might be in the midst of my darkest moment, but I've got hope. This is why the apostle Paul would often write about a living hope or Peter would write about a living hope and they would be in prison being beaten, not knowing if they would ever get out and they would talk about a hope. It's not optimism. They weren't looking at the prison cell going, well, probably just gonna get out of here one day. No, I've got hope in the midst of it. Paul is sitting there worshiping just in the midst of being chained and shackled and he's worshiping God for who he is. And guess what? In the middle of his worship, The prison walls shake, the doors open up, and the shackles fall off of his wrist. He didn't say, God, I'll worship you if you'll take the things off. No, God, you're my living hope. You've already arrived in my life. You've already made me from a man who was dead in sin, and now I'm alive. So even if I die in this prison cell, I've got the hope of Jesus. I don't need a situation to change to have hope in the midst of it. That's the hope of Jesus. But the beauty of Jesus is that when Paul was in the prison... And he was praising God for who he was when his situation wasn't a very praiseworthy situation. But remember, we don't praise God because of our situation. We praise God in the midst of it because he's good no matter what it looks like. But because God's so good, what happens? Well, worship is a weapon. Prison walls start shaking. And what's awesome about the story about Paul and Silas worshiping in prison is the Bible doesn't say that just their prison opened up. It says every prison door opened up because your worship in the midst of your hopeless situation, the breakthrough isn't just for you. It's for others as well. It's for others as well. And so hope is something that we can have even if it still looks hopeless. It's not just going, I'll be better if this changes. It's saying I'm not waiting on anything to change because I've got the greatest hope already. It's Jesus. Peter actually called it a living hope. Now there's this other word I wanna show you and this word's in the Greek. This is another word for hope and it's very interesting because this word showed up on the scene after this Greek word kind of got its birthplace after Jesus left the tomb empty. And this Greek word is elpis and it means the spirit of hope. And so I had this thought the other day, and again, thinking about what I just said about Paul, that wasn't in my notes, that all just came to me, so it wasn't in my, in my flow this morning. But I had the idea of a martyr. Does anybody know what a martyr is? A martyr is someone that is willing to die for their faith, right? This is why the Bible would tell us that people who are martyred for Christ, like there is a special reward for them in heaven, right? It's not just people who choose to live their life for Jesus, it's people who are willing to continue to claim him to the point of death. And you do understand this is not just some historical thing we're talking about. On the planet right now, as you breathe oxygen this very moment, there are people being killed and tortured for their faith in Jesus, living in nations at this current moment where this is not legal. They can't gather like this. You can't just walk around with one of these. I was just telling some students the other day, there are several countries in the world right now that just recently removed the Bible app off of all app stores, and it's not accessible in their nations on smartphones. Like... There are people who are vehemently against this. Why? Why? I mean, it's, it's truth, it's grace, it's mercy, right? It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness. What's the issue? The issue is, is that darkness is scared right now. Because the Bible says that there's a great revival in the last days coming. And I'm telling you that something is shifting in the world right now. I hope you didn't just come to church to sit in a comfy chair and just get by. You're either here to be the ones who say, hey, whether this is legal or illegal, it is about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. My life is for him now. And to the point of death, my life will be for him. And this is why we know that Jesus is a living hope, because even martyrs. Martyrs are able to say, I've got a hope. Literally, as they're being walked to execution, they're talking about the hope that they have. See, they don't need a bad situation to turn good to have hope because they have Jesus. He's arrived, he's already arrived. The hopeless can find hope even in the midst of their hopelessness because he's already arrived. Hosea says it this way in the book of Hosea, he's looking at this valley And he calls it a a valley of trouble, this difficulty. And he says, I believe this valley of trouble can turn into a door of hope. And I had this thought, because that's Old Testament. And you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about how you can always find Jesus in the Old Testament. Matthew 7, 7 says, it talks about knock, seek, ask, and the door will be opened. Well, you know who the door is, right? The door is Jesus. And so I love the fact that Hosea actually prophetically spoke, I believe this trouble can turn into a door of hope. And then guess what? Jesus shows up on the scene. The door of hope, the door of hope, the arrival. And so what I wanna do to close this message, um, and I really am at the close, this is crazy. Um, Some of you are like, really? Yes, really, I promise. Um, I'm gonna read you scriptures I've never read in a message before because it's usually the stuff that you would glass over. How many of you have ever tried to read the Bible and you did this? A descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and Judah and his brothers, and Judah and his prez and Zerah. And then no, no, no. anybody been there? <laughs> Soon y'all got to the book of Numbers and you're like, yeah, I failed math class. Let's just skip on over. <laughs> Let's go to the next book. Deuteronomy, I'm on my way, right? That's the book after numbers. Anyways, um, I want to read you. A genealogy from Matthew chapter one, and I want to show you that it's much more than just so and so's dad and so and so's auntie and all that. Like that, there's actually a picture that hope has arrived, and that's what this is about. It's what Christmas is about. And again, I don't want to. I don't want to be the church or the person here preaching this. Was like, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season, and then here we are, and then everybody, you know, go wrap your presents and fill your stockings and we miss the fact that there's people in hopelessness sitting in this room right now. There's families that are gonna walk through this room next Saturday who are living in darkness, little boys and girls who, who, who just maybe in, in, a, in a situation at home have moms and dads who are doing their best, but maybe just in the overwhelmingness of it all have not had an adult, man or woman, get down and look at them and say, hey, you're, you're awesome, you're incredible. Did you know that? Man, God has something so incredible for your life. Can you imagine, and maybe you're in this room, and this is the truth, and I remember being a youth pastor for several years, and there was a guy coming to our young adult ministry, he was friends with Jonathan and I, and I'll never forget seeing him come to church and just really sink in, and one day in the four-year, I caught him, and I was like, hey, man, and I just looked at him. I said, I just want to let you know I'm super proud of you, and this 22-year-old guy broke down, and I was like, you okay? Is everything fine? And like literally took him minutes to gather himself. And now as I'm a father, like it hits me in a whole different way because I wasn't a father in that season. And he, he finally, drying the tears from his eyes, looked at me and he said, Pastor, I've never had anybody say those words to me. And I just thought to myself, 22 years on the planet and no one's looked this guy in the eyes and said, hey, I'm proud of you. At night, I'll pray over Canyon Jones and I'll have this whole like declaration that I do and um. And then we do this short little prayer. And then I've been doing this thing lately because I had that thought about that story. And I just put my nose to his nose. And I'll look at him and say, hey, I'm proud of you. And he'll go, okay. <laughs> he doesn't really know what I'm saying. But I thought to myself, I was holding Rivi the other day. We have all the babies. So God just speaks through babies, okay? Um, I was holding her, and she smiles with her whole face, y'all. Just her whole face. She hasn't done anything. She's a baby. Like, she just exists, you know? And and I'm holding her, and I found myself saying, I'm so proud of you. And I just felt the Lord say, that's my response to you. That's how I love you. I don't need you to do anything. I've already arrived with hope on the scene. It's who I am. And so... When we experience hope, I apologize for the emotion. All the college students are like, what's happened? You'll understand when you have a kid, okay? Shut up. (laughs) So here's what I want to do with the genealogy real quick in Matthew chapter 1. I'm not going to read it in full because, honestly, I can't pronounce all the names really well. And I'm not focusing on all of it. So I'm going to jump around. Go read it all yourself, okay? But before I start, I want you to understand this, what I'm about to talk about with Jesus. See, fairy tales start this way. Once upon a time, in the Hundred Acre Woods, right? Whatever. Fairy tales start that way, and I, I, I know the problem is this. I grew up a Disney kid, right? I mean, my mom was a Disney fanatic, still is, like any and everything Disney. And so, you know, when you're raised that way, watching all these things, and you're learning about all these miraculous things Jesus is doing, you're hearing in the Bible and in church, it's really easy culturally for a child to kind of like in their brain be like, wait a second. So they're saying Cinderella's not real, but this is real. And, and I'm not saying Cinderella's bad. I'm just saying, understand, even at, for me as a kid, I can remember processing that. But this is why Jesus is way different. Because fairy tales start with once upon a time. Stories with genealogy are rooted in history, and they give confidence to what has happened. Every time we read about Jesus, we can literally go back through the historical, documented record of families that we can prove historically and archaeologically. So this is not once upon a time Jesus came to die on the cross for your sins. This is rooted in historical fact that Jesus came from here. And I want to show you what it says. Do not fall asleep. It's a lot of names. Stick with me. Let's start with Matthew 1, 1 through 3. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Everybody say Tamar. It'll make sense in a second. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And then you go down to Matthew 1, starting in verse 5. It says, um, I'm just going to call him Salmon. I mean, that's how you would spell it, so I'm going to call him that. Um, Salmon was the father of Boaz, who was the mother of Rahab. Everybody say Rahab. Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, um, whose mother was Ruth. Everybody say Ruth. Ruth. Um, And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. Everybody say Bathsheba, the, uh, the widow of Uriah. And then we jump down to Matthew one in verse fifteen. It says, um, Elehud was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of um, Mathan, and Mathan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah and all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Now, um, I know I read all that, and some of you are like, what in the heck is happening? I promise it'll make sense in just like three minutes. I had you just say some people's names. Now, here's what's interesting about genealogies. In this historical time, genealogies is really... You can kind of say it however you want to say it. I was listening to a theologian the other day, and he was like, it was very common. Even depending on what nationality of people they were around is the way they would explain their genealogy. Be like, oh, yeah, yeah, Well, I'm, I'm the son of so-and-so who's the son of so-and-so. But then they could be in a different place and not use one of those names because it might not mean something to that group of people and pick a different name. But the one thing you would always do when you would share your genealogy is you would always leave out, like, like Uncle Rico, you know, like the one that's just weird, like, bro, he did some shady stuff. Like, he was locked up for a while. We don't really talk about him. You know what I mean? Just leave him out. Hey, isn't so-and-so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's part of the family. You know? You're using the people of prominence. You're using the names that would have been well-known, respectable. And this was a common practice. So especially if we're talking about the king here, like the king of kings, Jesus, the Messiah. I mean, the Jews are thinking, dude, he's going to come from the line of David, Right? From the throne of David. And like, this is, it's gonna show that he can be king because the Jews are thinking he's gonna be king, like seated on an earthly throne. But Jesus shows up and says, Bro, I'm the king of kings. Their thrones ain't got nothing on what I got. Like, the earth is my footstool. What are you talking about, king? Like, dude, his castle is weak, bro. Like, God is just, it, it, his kingdom, it means, like, it, the stuff of the earth, we can't even wrap our minds around the kingdom that God possesses. And so, Here's this genealogy, but can I tell you they messed up? They made some really poor choices. First off, it says um, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Why in the world did they throw Tamar in there? You know about Tamar, right? Tamar cultural custom would say that if your husband died, then then her brother would become uh, his brother would become your husband. Well, Tamar's husband died, but the brother was a little too young. He was only like 10 years old. So, like, they need to wait till he got a little bit older. You know what I mean? Don't be, like, marrying off no 10-year-olds, right? It's just weird. So they have to wait till he gets older. Well, Tamar, she starts sleeping around. She starts doing some shady stuff. And so um, uh, her father-in-law, Judah, is not happy about it. And so he basically says, hey, I'm just exiling you back to where you came from. Like, you can't have my other son. Sorry. You're just shady. And so he does something not culturally, like not okay to really treat the girl that way, okay? Like especially because she was already married into the family. And he basically just says, yeah, you're losing your other slot. My bad. Well, here's the thing. When people try to live high and mighty but they're not, not high and mighty, Judah goes to the next town over to uh, do some stuff he ain't got no business doing, brown chicken, brown cow, if you, if you pick up what I'm throwing down. And he meets a girl who's got a veil on her face, and homegirl throws some trickery. And you know who homegirl is? Tamar. Tamar gets her father-in-law to impregnate her. And now she's a part of the family and he has no, no choice. She has to be around. Yes, yeah, she made it in the genealogy of Jesus. Oh, yeah, 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 Aunt Tamar. Yeah, she in there. Go ahead, put her in there. And then you move down a little bit and we're reading. And it's, it, it, it gets to the point of Rahab. If you don't know anything about Rahab, Dude, Rahab's the one who, yes, she helped the Israelites, but she was a prostitute. She was a well-known prostitute in her community. And she helped the children of Israel sneak in and spy out the land. But, like, not a girl you'd put on the genealogy. Also, ladies, just understand, this doesn't have anything to do with us, okay? This is, like, culturally. But women didn't even make any genealogies anyways. So the fact that he's throwing women in there, but the ones that you would think, like, bad form. I don't know about that one. Maybe we should just leave her out. You know what I mean? Like, let's not talk about, let's not talk about her. And, and you keep seeing these names pop in there. And so um, Rahab, like, her lifestyle is well known. Why is she in there? Yes, we know she did something good, but let's not put her in that list. And then it goes on and it talks about um, Jesse, the father of King David, David, who was the father of Solomon, and then whose mother was Bathsheba, And was the widow of Uriah. If you don't know that whole story, David is king. David one day goes out on his balcony, sees a woman bathing on her roof. Hello. And then says, hey, who is that? They say, oh, that's Uriah the Hittite's wife. Well, first off, King David should have never been looking because the the army was on the battlefield. And King should have been on the battlefield. King David was already in a place he shouldn't have been. Some of us fall into sin because we're hanging out in places we ain't got no business being. He should have been on the battlefield. He wasn't. He calls in Bathsheba, sleeps with her, then realizes what he's done, gets her pregnant. Now, this is, the tro- this is David, y'all. David that killed Goliath. Like, we're talking about, like, the, the man after God's own heart, the Bible says. And he ends up going, oh, my gosh, what have I done? Calls Uriah off the battlefield, tries to get him, get him a little bit, you know, and say, hey, why don't you go enjoy your wife? You've been working real hard. And he says, I won't do it. If my men are on the field, I'm not doing it. Sleeps on the king's doorstep. The next day... King David again Like, hey man, why don't you just go spend some time with your wife, you really deserve it. He said, I won't do it. Uriah gets given a letter by David and goes back to the battlefield. What he doesn't realize is that letter that's sealed with the king's ring, which is David's ring, actually has his death certificate inside. And they say, put Uriah on the front line and make sure that he dies. David, a man after God's own heart, slept with a woman that wasn't his, and then got her husband murdered. And then that woman gets listed in here. Now look, we know Jesus has got to come from the line of David. But don't throw David's dirty laundry out there like that. In the genealogy of Jesus, what are you doing? Well, we've already thrown Tamar, Rahab, and now we throw this whole Bathsheba thing in there. Like, man, just, just, say, just say he had a wife and that Solomon was their son. Just leave it at that. And then you move on down. And then it gets to the end, and you see this one, one other girl. Because notice, every other situation we just read, besides those little snippets of these women's names, it just says father of so-and-so and and the son of. But when we get down to Mary and Joseph, it says Joseph, who was married to Mary, who gave birth to the Messiah. Here's what's interesting about Mary. Young ladies in the room, she's but 16 years old. 16 years old. Now, I know some of you are like, Pastor John, what are you doing with this? Worship team, you guys can come up. Like, well, why are you sharing all this? Here's why I'm sharing the genealogy of Jesus. Here's why I'm telling you that hope has already arrived. Here's why I'm telling you that you can have hope even in the midst of hopelessness, is because Our King Jesus didn't show up to be like, hey, look at the perfect record of what I came from. He said, hey, there's some people with some shady past and some messed up stuff and they come right in my genealogy and I made sure to make sure that their names were mentioned there because even for people like King David who is a man after God's own heart or even a girl like Tamar or Rahab or Bathsheba or even just a little pure teenage girl, uh, someone who's in this room right now because I remember me as just a teenage boy and I tried to do things God's way And I don't have some crazy testimony. I didn't get addicted to crazy drugs. Thinking to myself, man, what does my story even matter? And I look at Mary and they mention Mary in the genealogy of Jesus. That it was just this young teenage girl who was just living the right way. And what I'm telling you about the genealogy of Jesus is you don't fit in any category that doesn't end up in the genealogy of Jesus. This grace is for everyone. Jesus was saying, hope has arrived. I'm on the scene. And I don't care what the past looks like. David, you can sit on your throne, and then you can make the worst of the worst decisions. And I'm not even going to be ashamed to mention it because this is what I come from. Because this grace and this hope that I bring, that I'm arriving with, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. I know they would have kept you off the list, but Jesus said, I'm putting you on my list. You're not too far gone. You haven't made too many mistakes. He's arrived, and he's including you. He's arrived, and he's including you, and here's kind of a crazy little thing. So listen to what it says here at the very end. It says, and all of those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. That's three 14s. Now if you break 14 down, what's half of 14? So now we've got six sevens. Y'all, it took me a while, I'm not great at math, okay? We got six sevens. Now the number seven in the Bible always represents perfection. Now this is very crucial to the story that God's telling because it says 14 generations from here to here, 14 from here to here, 14 from here to here. And then we end end up on Jesus. Now, we know that God created the earth in how many days? Six days. And on the what day? Seventh day, he did what? He rested. There's a scripture. My wife read it to our SEU students the other day in the book of Hebrews that because of Jesus, we can make every effort to enter into the rest. And so Jesus, it doesn't end with him. The seventh starts with him. We have seven sevens once we get to Jesus, and Jesus is literally establishing a covenant of grace, and he's inviting you and I into his rest. And guess what he's saying through his genealogy? Everyone's included. Everyone can enter this. Rest. Yeah, but Pastor John, you don't know what I did last weekend. I don't care what you did last weekend. Bro, look what Tamar did centuries ago. She got listed. If it's good enough for her, is good enough for you. This is the arrival Of our King. This is what Christmas is all hinged on. That this one has arrived and says to the world, says to your friend who looks at you and says, Bro, I'm not going to church. Stop asking me. You know, if I walk in that place, the building's gonna fall down. No, it ain't. God don't hate all of us, that He's gonna kill everybody just because you walked in the room, okay? Please stop. And guess what? You think it's not for you, but you're actually listed in the lineage. Someone just like you. Your past, your struggles, they're listed in the lineage. You're included. You stand to your feet, church. I don't know where you are today. I don't know if this is speaking directly to you or if it's giving you something to go, oh, my gosh. I'm about to go into holiday time with some family members who think any and everything about God that they're just not included. And maybe this is a moment where God's given you a fresh revelation. No, this is for everybody. This is for everyone. I love that the scripture says, that God so loved the world that whosoever. And I stop at that word often because that word reminds me. It says, for God so loved the world that whosoever will. And I just read that genealogy and I think to myself, for whosoever will. Jesus has arrived. You're not waiting on hope. You're not waiting on peace. You're not waiting on, on, on power. It's a ride for whosoever will. For whosoever will believe. For whosoever will trust the Lord. For whosoever will implement his ways of doing things. For whosoever will. Not, do you got it together? Have you been to church enough? Have you, have you gotten all the skeletons out of the closet? No, for whosoever will. For Rahab, the current prostitute, who invited the children of Israel to spy out the land, and then God spared her family when the whole city got destroyed. Why didn't God tell her, hey, why don't you have a good three months clean, and then we'll we'll talk about saving your family? No, for whosoever will. Rahab was the one who says, I'll let you in. I'm not great. I know your God probably wouldn't be pleased with me, but I'll let you in. And that's all that Jesus is asking. Will you let him in? Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to check us out on thevoyage.church to stay updated on everything God is doing in our city.